Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's November, November 5th, 2014. We have a stellar crew that I want to get to um, just momentarily. First, um, give yourselves a round of applause. November 7th, Friday, is the deadline for everyone and the medical and professional and other staffs of Dartmouth-Hitchcock to have their flu vaccines for the season. And the report I got yesterday, Monday, was that there was no one left in the Department of Pediatrics who needed a flu vaccine. So no chasing anyone down. Once again, leading the way in, in population and public health. We have a... Um, a uh, short month for Grand Rounds. I had the list and I uh, took it over somewhere else. Next week is... So, oh, I'm on next week. I'm going to go Chad. <laughs> State of Chad address uh, system-wide and we'll wrap up the month as we talked last week with Rick Greenwald. Uh, today it's really a pleasure that uh, our folks um, from our state chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, the leading organization for advancement of uh, health and well-being of children, or one of the leading organizations professionally in the country, many of us are belong to. Our state chapter is the New Hampshire Pediatric Society, which has a long and uh, proud tradition. I'll actually touch a little bit on that next week with uh, folks like Franklin Nord Rogers and, um, and our own Colin Stewart. We're leaders in New Hampshire, New Hampshire Pediatric Society. Um, so hopefully, if you're not, you will consider joining membership of the NHPS uh, in addition to your AAP membership. And I don't, do we have membership categories in NHPS for non-physicians? There's certainly in the National Academy now can, candidate uh, positions available for nurse practitioners and associate providers as well. Um, but um, we have a, a presentation today by a team from both the New Hampshire Pediatric Society and as you see from Department of Health and Human Services for the state of New Hampshire to introduce them, the vice president elect. Yes, the Vice President of the New Hampshire Pediatric Society, actually our own Dr. Stephen Chapman. Thanks, Keith, for that plug for the New Hampshire Pediatric Society, um, the, the, New Hampshire, the New Hampshire chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. So the New Hampshire Pediatric Society represents pediatricians throughout their state, throughout the state, and their advocacy for, ch for children at the state government level and through state agencies. And so please, the stronger that chapter is, the more people become members of that, the stronger a voice we can have. So we have three speakers today, two from the New Hampshire Pediatric Society and one from the <coughs> State Department of Health and Human Services. And I'll just introduce them very briefly so that they can get up here. First speaker is Diane Dorsey. She's a pediatrician who did a residency here at Dartmouth and has been working as an advocate for children throughout the state for the past 26 years. As a member of the of the New Hampshire chapter of the AAP, she became the disaster preparedness champion, which brings her here today. Our second speaker is Chris Adamski. She's currently the Bureau Chief of Infectious Disease at the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services. She's also Public Health Emergency Preparedness Director with oversight of public health incident response activities throughout the state, including for children. She has FEMA training and 16 years of service in the New Hampshire state. And our last speaker, batting cleanup, is uh, Skip Small, um, who was a pediatrician at Dover Pediatrics for 34 years. For 34 years, he's now retired, um, and he is also a disaster preparedness champion, working with Diana. So thank you three for coming, and Diana. 
Good morning. Children have distinct health care needs in regards to their anatomic, physiologic, developmental, and psychological characteristics. These differences make them among the most vulnerable during a disaster. There are also social and environmental needs that should be considered in preparing to care for youth and their families during a disaster. What is a disaster? A disaster is a situation or event that overwhelms the system. When children are involved, the situation is beyond the capacity of most systems. We have examples of disasters, hurricanes, terrorism, tornadoes, pandemics, tsunamis, floods, volcanoes. Children can be affected in many ways. Developmental immaturity can place children at a greater risk during a disaster. Youngsters lack the cognitive ability and self-preservation skills to know how to respond to a dangerous situation or an emergency. The youngest may also lack the necessary motor skills to escape from a dangerous environment. They may be unable to follow the directions of a stranger who is trying to help them. Imagine how a preschooler would perceive emergency responders in a biohazard gear giving them instructions. They may also be affected indirectly through exposure to the media. Children are more likely to sustain greater damage from smoke inhalation or from an aerosolized biological or chemical agent. Children are more prone to absorb chemicals or radiation through the skin. They are closer to the ground where contaminants may be more concentrated. They are at a substantially greater risk for hypothermia, which can happen with decontamination wa washes or with cold. Children are more prone to develop shock due to smaller blood volume and smaller fluid reserves. Compared with adults, they are more likely to sustain a serious injury with blood loss from a blast injury. The force of the blast is distributed over a smaller body. Equipment and supplies are important considera consideration for disaster planning. The wide range of ages and body sizes within the pediatric population require advanced preparation to assure there will be appropriately sized medical equipment, supplies, and acceptable medical medication formulations to support the care of young people of all ages. Pediatricians can play a vital role in helping local communities to be better prepared to address the emergency care needs of children. First, the medical home. The place where a child regularly receives care is an essential component of a community's resiliency and recovery framework. Pediatricians should work with their staff to ensure that there is a disaster plan for their practice, one that is regularly rehearsed and one that will support continuity of operations when a disaster strikes. Get involved. Take part in drills. 
Communicate with parents the importance of creating a disaster plan. The AAP has resources and connections. These will help you and the families that you care for. The AAP developed the Pediatric Preparedness Resource Kit in response to the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. The resource kit allows for pediatricians, public health leaders, and other pediatric care providers to assess their community and state and help determine what needs to be done before a disaster. It offers best practices. They're available at disasterready at aap.org or with the link for aap.org disaster resource kit. The AAP then developed in 2013 a preparedness checklist for pediatric practices. The checklist offers steps that pediatricians or their practice staff can take to improve office preparedness. Also included are strategies on keeping vaccines safe during an emergency, as well as steps to promote professional self-care. In 2014, the AAP developed the Newborn Screening in Emergencies handout. The handout details the newborn screening process and why contingency planning for newborn screening is important during emergencies. Pediatricians can improve emergency plans within their local communities by advising schools, childcare facilities, local healthcare facilities, and emergency planners about the unique considerations for children. Pediatricians, can, such as Skip and myself, can serve as expert advisors to local, state, and federal agencies and committees and play a key role in disaster and terrorism preparedness with families, children, and their communities. The AAP has a designated website with sections on audience-specific resources for a child care provider, for a hospital, for pediatricians, for schools. There are disaster topics, including earthquakes, hurricanes, influenza, terrorism. There's educational and training tools, and much more. How to get involved. You can email disasterready at aap.org, be added to electronic mailing lists, receive AAP updates and information. There are resources and opportunities. Visit the AAP website. Pediatricians are in a unique position to educate patients and families about emergency planning. This is especially important for families who have children with special health care needs. New Hampshire Family Voices has created an emergency preparedness guide for families having children with special health care needs. They're available on the table outside along with some other handouts. <coughs> it explains when a disaster hits, you won't have time to shop or search for your supplies. But if you've gathered the supplies in advance, your family can handle a home confinement or evacuation. The to-go to kit lists what are some of the basic first aid needs, but then thinking of supplies for the spe children with special health care needs regarding medications, supplies, 
an emergency plan, having physicians' names written down, uh, know who your doctor's phone numbers are. And finally, I would like to thank Steve Krug for allowing me to use his article from the AAP News Magazine to create this presentation. I'd also like to thank Laura Aird from the AAP for putting this slide presentation together based on his article. Thank you. I can't be tethered to a desk. I, I know it's an affliction I have, but I, I just can't do it. So um, good morning. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk about uh, disaster preparedness and certainly in the pediatric realm. Um, I, I hear uh, in, in spirit and in partnership with Director Rick Crescenti, who oversees the Emergency Services Unit. They are, in essence, our logistics arm for the Department of Health and Human Services, relatively new. Um, in our organization over the last uh, five to seven years and with a whole lot more progress and development in the last couple of years. So what does the Emergency Services Unit do? Um, they coordinate for us on behalf of the department and certainly public health, the Division of Public Health Services, any public health emergencies, whether larger uh, or, or smaller and more localized, natural disasters, uh, acts of terrorism, uh, they are called upon for anything from failure of our Office of Information Technology Systems, which unfortunately happens more than I'd like to think about. Um, and we actually have events such as our public health laboratories uh, pipes freezing. And that happened in January 2013. An emergency services unit was called upon to react to that. And, and we did a great job in first and foremost notifying our employees not to come to work that day because the lab was frozen. Um, they manage emergency supply caches on behalf of us in warehouses and trailers. Uh, they lead us in emergency support functions, um, and that is specific to health and medical, uh, also to mass care and sheltering, which we're talking about today. Uh, this is kind of a busy slide, but I want to talk through it just a little bit in terms of our framework. Um, you hear, I think, oftentimes every disaster is local. Um, and that is true because you're building expertise from local to regional to statewide to federal, I think. And, and certainly every state, New Hampshire, is in, their infrastructure is very different as it relates to an emergency response from, from other states. And that's okay. You just need to be able to navigate that during a response. So um, what we have here is a lot of, acron oops, a lot of acronyms here. My pointer. Uh, so we have a point of dispensing or distribution. It's been called that. In essence, that's a clinic. Um, that's just distributing countermeasures vaccines, antibiotics, whatever it is. You have certainly the hospital. You have something called the uh, Neighborhood Emergency Help Center, or NEC, and that is, in essence, a triage. So this is the structure we have, and we've had in a model, but in practice, continue to build upon. You have an ACS, which is an alternate care site. So that's not within the hospital, but that's a less acute. And I can uh, talk just for a couple of minutes about some functional exercises and tabletops we did last year, which was we learned a lot about. Um, and a local emergency operations center, which is, in essence, the local uh, emergency managers at the town level. So when we have a public health incident, there needs to be a coordinated uh, avenue in order to request things, whether it's request information, request things, 
request services, help troubleshoot, problem solve, and command and control. And so that is the multi-agency coordinating entity. It's not a person, it's a formation, it's a thing in order to facilitate that communication, <laughs> which we all know, I think, when we respond to emergencies, communication is, is what we're always talking about and how we can make it better. So we have our state emergency operations center, which is run by our Homeland Security and Emergency Management at Department of Safety. Um, they do a lot of the stuff. So if we need cones, we need uh, things for traffic to facilitate, that's state emergency operations center. For DHHS, the incident command center is the emergency services unit, and they do the medical stuff. And uh, my team is, is sort of over here to the left. Um, and then, of course, we're working with FEMA, Centers for Disease Control, and other federal partners um, as the situation warrants. So an overarching framework in which we've worked together for many years. We had this wonderful release of capability standards over the last couple of years, hundreds of pages of standards in which how can we achieve a specific capability. Uh, so our uh, partners at CDC put out a public health emergency preparedness capabilities, 15 capabilities such as community preparedness, medical surge, um, laboratory testing, epi and surveillance. And so it was a very prescriptive, but an excellent roadmap or framework in which we could look to, to see where we are in terms of our capacity and how we, how we get better and how we reach essentially full achievement of those capabilities. Shortly followed by public health was the uh, hospital preparedness program, which is now, I'll, I'll just mention, a bit of a paradigm shift in the next slide here, but it's not so much about hospital preparedness, it's healthcare system preparedness. So there's eight of those that sort of crosswalk and align with 15 of the public health ones. And we can, we can certainly talk about that more, but it's healthcare system preparedness, medical surge, uh, a lot of the same ones, but sort of crosswalked. And as I mentioned, there's been this paradigm shift. So we don't only want to prepare hospitals, as you well know, we want to prepare the system and looking at population health and how do we best respond to any emergency. And there's this formation and essentially directive from HHS federally to say, let's, let's look at healthcare coalitions. And they are comprised of not only hospitals, but local clinicians, uh, regional partners, those healthcare systems. So it's not simply the hospital, but it's the hospital affiliates. It's the ambulatory centers. It's the dialysis centers. It's, it's all of the healthcare system looking collectively and working as a coalition toward improving and preparing and responding. So how do we manage a response? I, I mentioned to someone this morning that I met, we, we really appreciate, I think, the opportunity to have the framework that's been given to us and to learn through ICS. Incident command system was something we didn't do typically. I've been at the department for 16 years. It's relatively new for us in terms of public health. Um, we're all in our incident management team, currently 300, 400 advanced trained in ICS. And we've had, um, unfortunately, a lot of experience with implementing our ICS structure. We know that it's flexible and scalable and it really does provide a common framework that we can all work together. We know what the chain of command is, we know who's doing what, and otherwise chaos ensues, right? Um, we have uh, our logistics, we have our planning, we have all the key kind of ICS roles and we also have supplemental roles. So we have medical subject matter experts. We have laboratory subject matter experts. We have our health alert coordinators who are key in sharing uh, information and communication during a response. Um, we currently activated and are currently activated at the Division of Public Health. It's across our division, our department, and Homeland Security. That's 
all of the folks that are in this incident management team. We uh, activated in what we called our double E IMT back about a month or so ago, and that was for the enterovirus uh, situation that we were dealing with, as well as Ebola, and we remain activated for Ebola. Infectious disease emergencies, I put this here because it's really, they're really an interesting kind of animal, I think very different from natural disasters, uh, although any natural disasters always have potential for public health impact, and we become engaged certainly in that. Um, but the concept is, is, you know, that it can happen anytime, and the definition really varies, and we need to be able to be quite flexible um, because there may be unique needs or resources. Um, we may, you may call something right, we may call it wrong. Um, we're saying now, certainly, and we can talk a little bit more about Ebola, you know, we're having a very low threshold, obviously, for testing for Ebola, provided, you know, that screening is positive for history, and if the symptoms aren't specific necessarily to what we know. We want, we'd rather overcall it than undercall it. Uh, this is a um, pretty hard slide at 8.25 in the morning, but essentially just to show you that we have implemented ICS. We dealt with two food service workers back in 2013 uh, who had acute hepatitis A infection. We formed an ICS structure. We essentially uh, kicked off clinics within 24 hours. Um, as always, the first clinic is usually a little bit chaotic. Um, the first one was like that. The second one was better. Um, and that's not, that's not unusual, and we shouldn't expect perfection, but we should expect to figure out where we might have seen some bottlenecks, where we saw some issues, and then we improve it the next time. Uh, these are just some happy people at some other clinics. <laughs> I wanted to just make the point that we never know with public health emergencies or natural disasters that may have public health impact, we can't predict essentially what that time frame is going to be, what we're going to be hit with as we respond. We're certainly learning that with Ebola. With the hepatitis C outbreak that we dealt with, this was a 13-month response, and there was some factors that influenced that. So, you know, the timeline and the duration of a response, we can't predict, and that loops us back, I think, to ICS and how we assure that we're, we've got some depth, that if the IC is getting tired, we bring in another IC. I wanted to mention two key things. One is volunteer management, because we all know our human nature is to help. And when there's an emergency or a disaster, people want to help. <coughs> um, but spontaneous volunteers can sometimes be counter to an effective response, <laughs> as you see here. Um, and, you know, anyone who's been in a response, whether it's in New Hampshire or nationally, this is a, an issue that has to be navigated. And again, it's human nature. You want to help, but you want to be able to structure that, assure there's credentialing, assure that they know what their role is within the ICS structure. Um, so we do have our New Hampshire response, which is um, our system for being able to identify prospective volunteers, assure that they know what their role is, if there's credentialing that needs to be, uh, you know, checked upon, we have our um, medical reserve corps, we have our disaster behavioral health response team, um, who we call upon and have already called upon. Because as you know, you're in a response, you're busy, you're not getting enough sleep perhaps, you're not maybe getting your five other jobs done. You need people to help you de-escalate and relax and take the time that you need. Because again, responses can be quite long. Um, we do also, I think, 
really need to focus on risk and risk communication and information sharing. It is essential, and I think anyone who's dealt in a response and will continue to, this is one that always rises to the top in terms of what we need to do better or what did we miss and how can we improve that the next time. Um, particularly around situations like Ebola where there's a very fluid and dynamic situation. Guidance may change. We dealt with that certainly with H1N1 as well. And so we need to be able to assure that we're getting information out, that we're getting it to all audiences, um, and certainly getting, most importantly, getting feedback uh, from, from key partners. Currently, we're looking at guidance for ambulatory care settings. So we're sending it out to a couple of key partners who work in ambulatory care and say, how does this look to you? How does this feel to you? Um, are we hitting the mark here? And so that's really important. <coughs> um, we don't ever know what's going to be next. There's a, a lot of things that we're dealing with, certainly. Um, again, I think from a public health perspective, we're always going to be looking to potential public health impact, whether it's a, a hurricane, uh, certainly ice storm, floods. We've dealt with all of these in New Hampshire. And our emergency <coughs> services unit is a wonderful kind of logistic support for public health. Uh, Director Crescenti, I. I call him and his first statement is, what do you need? And we tell him what we need and we work together on it. Um, I do have just the Ebola here. I know we're gonna have some time for questions and I'd be happy to try to answer, but you know, we remain activated for this and as you all know, we continue to follow the guidance. It's pretty dynamic, so that's all I have. And just acknowledgements to my colleague, Rick Crescenti, so. I'm going to try to be brief so we have plenty of time for questions. But first of all, I want to make sure you know I'm not an expert in disaster planning at all. I was a private pediatrician, and Diana gently <laughs> twisted my arm to get me onto this committee for state disaster planning for kids. But I've been appalled to realize how little kids have been taken care of in the past and how little planning there has been at all levels for children in disaster situations. Uh, it's, it, my impression is that there is a better plan for taking care of pets in a disaster than there are for kids. And I'm serious about that. Because after Katrina, a lot of the patients would not go into a shelter if their pet wasn't brought in. So that was attended to right away. In Katrina, there are about 1,500 kids that were unaccompanied that turned up at shelters of all ages. And some of them, it took two months to get reunified with the parents. So there aren't good plans for that. And on this committee, as we've been working on this, we realize that every agency we look at says it's their responsibility. So it's not clearly outlined in the state of who can give you legal response, legal, who can take legal responsibility for that child. So if you're a doctor treating that child in a shelter, you might not have somebody that can say, you legally can do that. I can give you the permission for that. So we're trying to work through that. We're also trying to work the, the um, Good Samaritan law is uh, out of date at this point. So it's not clear how much and who is, is covered in that. So we have to try and work at that. So um, be happy for your pets. Worry about your kids a little bit. Um, 
Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about preparing your office for disaster planning. And the first thing I want to point out is don't rely on others to do the planning for you. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was at the American Red Cross headquarters in Concord. Uh, this picture was up on the wall. And that is their evacuation plan from that building. And it's not much clearer than my picture. Um, the, uh, it's purely a floor plan that they put up. It doesn't indicate where you are in that building. It doesn't indicate where the exits are. So don't rely on others for planning. Uh, the American Red Cross is good in disasters, but it might not get you out of the room. <laughs> there are two kind of productive uh, responses to any crisis uh, that generally can lead to detrimental results. Um, one is one we're all aware of, and that's panic. And that generally occurs in a situation that's life-threatening and when there's no information. And we've all familiar with that situation of panic. The other one that is also common, and maybe even more common than panic, is inaction. People will just sit around and do nothing, even in a life-threatening situation. And that seems to come about because of people not expecting the unexpected and purely following crowd behavior. Simple example of this is we've all been in a situation where we're in a building like this, the fire alarm goes off. And we all sit there because we don't expect it to be an emergency. And we're not going to stand up and be the first to walk out because we might look foolish when everybody else is sitting around. So this can actually happen in life-threatening situations too. But it's an example of how important it is to think about things beforehand so you have information in your brain so you don't panic or you don't just sit there and do nothing. So I want to mention a few things about your office practice uh, to think about. I'm not going to give you any plans. That's up for you to think about. Uh, I'm just going to try to put things in your mind so you can think about them so they're in your mind when there is an emergency or a crisis. Uh, there's three broad categories that I look at for <clears throat> emergencies or disasters. Uh, one is infection. Uh, I, when I first started thinking about this talk, I was thinking about chicken pox and measles, but now we add Ebola in there. But does your receptionist know what to do if somebody comes to the front desk and has a rash that might be chicken pox or might be measles? Is she just going to say, oh, welcome here, go out and sit with everybody else? Okay. These are things that your staff has to know about planned out beforehand so you don't get into a situation where other people are exposed uh, and have trouble with that. The second situation is violence. Unfortunately, in this day and age, you have to be concerned, does your office know what to do if a disgruntled parent comes in with a gun? They might well just sit back saying, you're going to take care of it, and they'll wait for your response when really a response from them is, is needed very quickly. So those are relatively easy plans, but something to think about. The third area is any form of destruction to your office, and that includes fire and floods, uh, electrical outlet outages. Um, these are things can, that can happen anywhere, but they're going to disrupt your practice. They're going to disrupt your patients. Um, so some things on that. Make sure you involve your office staff 
and any type of planning for that, and make sure that you maintain access to patient information. So for the office, the office itself, obviously you want to make sure you have computer backup. Everybody realizes that, but it's often overlooked. Um, but make sure that's going to occur. The thing people don't think about is notify the electric utility that you're a medical office. You don't have to worry about that in this hospital because you've got generators and everything else. But if you're in private practice, your office is a priority for reestablishing electrical service. We found out this the bad way in my, my practice, where several years ago we were without electricity for five days. We had notified them before that we were a medical office, so they knew it, but somebody took the name off the list somehow, and we assumed they knew it. And uh, so even if you let them know beforehand, it's good to call and remind them at the time of the crisis. Um, think about an alternate site. If your office is flooded out or burned, where can you establish a practice? And it's good if you've thought about this beforehand rather than waiting to that time and scurrying around. So something to give thought to. Uh, maintain a separate source of information on all your vendors, your insurance policies, your insurance companies. So you have access to that if your computer is out or something like that. And then finally, make sure you have some access to money. In a broad emergency, you might not be seeing patients for a while, so you might not have income coming in. And so think about getting a line of credit that you have beforehand so you don't have to go scurrying around for that. Personnel considerations. One is communication. How are you going to get the message out to your office staff that you're able to function or that you're not able to function? And how are they able to contact you so that they can tell you they can make it in or they can't make it in? So work out something beforehand so they all know how to react on that. And then also give some thought beforehand about what you're going to do with payroll for them. Because in an emergency situation, they're going to need money too. And it would be tragic if you can't pay them because you can't get access to money. And, uh, then there's patient considerations. Uh, one is communication with them. How are you going to let your patients know where you're practicing, whether you're open or not? How are you going to get that information out? Are you going to do it over the radio, TV, what? And then I hope you all have, for your special needs kids, an emergency information form. And this is one that the Academy of Pediatrics puts out with the College of Emergency Physicians. And this is available online. It's one where we give the parents a copy of it, and we file a copy in the emergency room. So that information is all available in a few different spots. And we review it once a year with the, pay, with the family. And this form, has, it's a two-page form. It has spots for diagnostics and procedures that have been done in the past, information on the physical exam, gives some data on allergies and immunizations, also what other doctors might be involved, whether they've been seen up at Dartmouth, whether they've been seen in Boston, um, and then uh, what might be some common problems that they encounter. So if a different doctor that never knows them sees this, they can get some ready information. So it can be very helpful to your special needs families. Uh, resources, if you're looking at this more, Diana mentioned them. One is the Pediatric Preparedness Resource Kit for the Academy that you can order if you want. 
and the other is the preparedness checklist of pediatric practices. That's a long list of things that I haven't mentioned and, and I would have never thought of before. And frankly, some of it I wouldn't do for my practice, uh, like have a five-day supply of food and all that. But things to think about, many things that I haven't mentioned, talks about immunizations, make sure you have backup systems for that. And um, the main thing is make sure you plan ahead on these things. If you have a thought in, the mind, in your mind, you're not going to panic. You're not going to just sit around doing nothing. Uh, make sure you involve the staff. And then a reminder again to sign up with New Hampshire Response that Chris mentioned. It's an easy thing to sign up for. Um, when I first heard about it, there were only five pediatricians in the state that signed up for it. Uh, as of last month, there are now seven. I was one of them that signed up. <laughs> it takes five minutes to sign up, and it's easy. There's no obligation. If you call uh, and can't do something or don't want to do it, you just say no. Uh, but in a situation, it gives them a chance to contact you and know that you've your credential to help. Uh, other states have the same system. If you're from Vermont, it's the VERB system, and uh, you can contact them. So that's it for there. We're happy to answer any questions. about time we got off our butts and did something for gun violence. And I understand that, you know, it's a, you're a state agency and there's a lot of political hassle with that. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has got, you know, its own uh, fellowship, some of whom. But I, I think there's a very valid point that when it comes to children, one of the biggest risks is they're going to be taken out in a, in a gun disaster, in a, in a multiple uh, an invasion of a school and that kind of thing. Uh, could you inform me your feelings on that and how your activities relate to that, which is probably one of the biggest challenges for, for pediatricians in this country as to how to, in a community level and a, and a public health level and so forth, uh, uh, deal with this, this real problem we have in this country? <laughs> I can certainly just note and, and know that I know our emergency services unit and our disaster behavioral health team have been involved in some, I think, some drills um, to, to those, as well as in hospitals in terms of gun violence. You know, they call them active shooter exercises. And I know there have been some that have been conducted around the state. Um, I think it's a, you know, it's a really valid point, and it's one that I think we have to just, if, if, we, if we aren't prepared or we don't really know what some of the issues are, it's really having those drills, even if it's a call-down drill to start, to move toward a more functional kind of drill, then we understand where some of those gaps are and where we're, you know, we, we really see some vulnerabilities because that's, you know, the only way I think we can move forward. In terms of the political, I, you know, I don't, it, it's an enormous problem, but I know there have been many schools who have taken some proactive steps towards doing some of these active shooter exercises. And you know, I don't know if you know more about those, but those are, I think, one way to get to that. 
Skip and I had talked uh, months ago on this Grand Rounds and, and talking about examples, and that the incident at the YMCA in, in Manchester was one of the things, and I worked 23 years at a low-income clinic in Manchester, and we had domestic violence issues, we had angry parents, so it's not necessarily a, a school issue, but that's why we talked is in this day and age. You, you, as a pediatrician, you need you need to have a plan. You need you need to be aware of what is going to happen. So, um, you, we did practice it at Child Health Services. What are you going to do when an out of control person comes in and potentially has the gun beyond being out of control? And there's a restraining order um, on that person, and they show up. What do you do in your office? So we have plans. I think there's. A couple other things I'd add. One of the things pediatricians are going to be asking each family whether there's guns in the home, whether it's secured, that type of thing. Um, certainly, there's mental illness. We have to push even more about trying to get guns out of the house. Um, I have a daughter that's in the education system, and when I ask her, it's clear that they go through these drills all the time. When we were younger, we used to have the nuclear now it's the, the gun coming in. They're all, they have a plan of which closet they go to and all that. So I think that on the immediate level. you know that the Academy, the American Academy of Pediatrics, is a strong advocate for uh, sensible gun control and, and was out in full force uh, 42 years ago around the Sandy Hook. Um, and is currently um, strongly participating in efforts in Florida to overturn the, the gag order, essentially the rule that prevents pediatricians from being able to ask about that very topic that Skip talked about in their clinical encounters. The, the NHPS, I know, has engaged in strategic planning in the past couple of years and has made advocacy one of its priority uh, mission activities. So I don't see that if we're on the list of uh, priority activities it's one of the top top issues and it's not just uh, school violence but um, for kids suicide by guns is a major major issue more kids die by suicide and guns than, than um, homicidal um, incidents with a uh, public session a couple weeks ago for the program but I had a movie called barrel to the head which was the relationship between suicide and gun availability and one of the most tragic stories that was highlighted in that movie and the discussion afterwards was an example of a family just outside Burlington, Vermont, where um, a father picked up a gun, bought a gun at um, a service station on the way home and killed himself at the impulse, 21-year-old um, father. So the issues of gun availability um, and advocacy around that you know, before someone comes into a school, I think is, is, is um, it's a major, major issue in both New Hampshire and Vermont. Another question. Keith. Oh, sorry. <coughs> uh, Larry, you mentioned uh, newborn screening. Uh, in New Hampshire, <coughs> five of the six states that we use an off-site laboratory in Katrina, newborn screening laboratory that will now take months for two returns. Babies keep getting 
same question. Right? I don't, um, so I know there's, a, there's a, an entity called the Laboratory Response Network nationwide um, that um, hospital laboratories as well as uh, public health, um, state public health laboratories um, work together to um, implement you know, backup or surge. An example of that is back a few years when we had anthrax. Um, we were doing some testing. We actually used a, a Tennessee lab to help us with some of that search testing. So I, I don't know the specifics about those particular tests, but I know that entity existed really for that purpose, um, to be able to build that network of laboratory testing capacity. So is that a role that you play, or did the, the, the laboratory in Massachusetts play? I think that would be a role that we would play in sort of coordination or collaboration with the state lab in Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, an example again, it would be Ebola because we're, there's now a number of labs who have been um, proficient or have gained their proficiency in the Ebola PCR. Massachusetts is one of them. So we don't do it in New Hampshire, but we've got a mechanism and a transport system in place to get those samples down to Massachusetts. So I think similarly with, with a situation like that, we would probably coordinate with, it may be New York, it may be Vermont, and I'm just not sure of the specific test, but that's, I think, what would happen is we would engage in that and help facilitate those samples in some sort of event. And you bring up a good, a good point. I, uh, when I brought Skip on board, <coughs> gently, to, uh, <laughs> to help, when it came time for more planning on, on children, and as we keep having more meetings, we keep identifying, as pediatricians, we keep identifying more and more needs and where they need to be resolved before an, an, an incident. So something like that, okay, so if it hasn't been thought of at the state level and there isn't a finalized plan, then that needs to be done. So I do encourage um, everybody, whether you're um, a physician or a, just a nurse or um, lab tech or anybody, anybody who has any healthcare um, skills, it's referred to as something that we have 250 fight domes in New Hampshire for emergency planning. So we have these um, major networks, but like little towns, they're responsible for their piece to it. Uh, and so that if you belong to a small town, you ought to be involved in your own, your own planning and what's going on in your, in your community. And you'll then start to see some of these issues that come up as we sit on, on these committees and for sh shelter, shelter planning, and it's like, okay, so then what about this? And then the issue about formulas and medications, and, and as you keep going to the meetings, um, there's a lot of issues that we, we continue to need to plan for so that we're not caught off guard. Kathy Shepkin. Um, thank you for that presentation. That was really informative. I was wondering how, or I guess it's a two-part question, and I'll just tell you the story. I have a patient who was displaced by the hurricane whenever that was two years ago. He was uh, placed in FEMA housing, lived in Vermont, got placed into New Hampshire with FEMA housing. He had behavior developmental needs, educational needs, and trying to get those services coordinated, not in the immediate one month past the hurricane, but in the year past the hurricane, a year and a half past the hurricane was daunting for this family, trying to get the IEP from one school district transferred over to another, trying to get his behavioral health team, um, you know, from Vermont to pay for stuff in New Hampshire because they couldn't get back to their house in Vermont. So I guess my two-part question is, one, how much do you coordinate with our surrounding states, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, 
And the second is, in terms of that long-term disaster preparedness, um, disaster planning for children, it includes their educational needs, their behavioral needs, other things that aren't just food, medicine, shelter, but kind of the long-term things that we need for children to stay healthy. So I was wondering if any of you could comment on those issues. New Hampshire Family Voices has a lot of resources and guides for talking with families on um, how to have their own records and have binders. Um, they, you go to their website, they have resources. So it is, not only is it just planning for special health care needs for something medical, but as you're saying, something developmental, something mental health. And um, we have talks about it for um, plans where you need to plan for the first 12 to 72 hours, because that is, seems to be the crux that we, Skip and I keep learning, is that um, you have to be able to plan for yourself, that there might not necessarily be somebody there for you until Red Cross or the Medical Reserve Corps, so that it's trying to get more families um, to be aware. So um, having them, if it flips, flows away, maybe they got a stick or somebody else has a um, you know, flash drive, but think of a, a way to plan for that. It was actually just getting the services coordinated because I, you know, luckily we didn't flood out here at Dartmouth, so I had all his records. I had everything. But just trying to get the, the agencies to talk with one another. I think that we don't have the answer for. I yeah. think you're dealing with bureaucracies, and if you solve that problem, then. <laughs> we, we do some planning, but I totally agree with bureaucracy. There's mechanisms such as mutual aid and other things that can help facilitate some of that cross-jurisdiction, but it's never easy. It just isn't. But it's always good to reflect on those experiences to say, all right, where did it really go wrong and we can make some headway on it. Dr. Shrench? Yes. Thank you for an excellent talk. One of the things that's not been well discussed in the literature is how health professionals can balance safety for themselves versus their duty towards patients. For example, in the H1N1 outbreak, or SARS, uh, it was actually SARS in Canada, a lot of nurses and doctors called in sick because they didn't want to expose themselves. So there are personal risks that you can face from infection, fire, bullets, whatever. And there's also medical legal risks. For example, in Katrina, when doctors make some tough decisions on whom to save and whom to let go, some of the doctors were called up in court later on, and they almost lost their license until advocacy groups supported them. So how do you balance your duty as a doctor versus saving yourself? I attended um, an AAP webinar on that exact issue, and it's not, a, not an easy issue. Um, for Katrina, there was one pediatrician who committed suicide due to the stress of having, being overwhelmed with the expectation of caring for so many in need. And in that response, the um, AAP created, um, became more involved in the aspects of what it is to be the caretaker during a catastrophe. Um, it was a two-hour webinar, so it's, it's something that's real. I don't have all the answers. But they do have support, some on that website. It talks about um, they have um, committee meetings where they were trying to find out what to do nationwide. So they've set up sort of buddy links that if, if you're overwhelmed, 
you could call and talk to another pediatrician who already went through this, whether it's the Katrina or the Vermont floods um, or um, Hurricane Sandy, so that there's sort of a network of support. I, I would all, I know that you and, and Bridget are on the, the Pediatric Ethics Planning Committee for our annual conference, and that sounds like the right uh, topic for discussion. <laughs> Paula, too, currently. Yeah, how many of us are going to show up for work? Right. Paula brings right. Exactly. I mean, that's a very interesting. We're also talking about having this reports rounds uh, in November to talk about Ebola and the emotional re reaction to the whole event. Just one quick response that balancing risk is not. Uh, in Albert Camus' novel, The Plague, the doctor just stays behind and treats the patients rather than leaving like a lot of other doctors did or tried to. Was described as a hero, and the doctor said, This isn't heroism, this is decency. So I think it's you know it's a tough thing to balance as an individual, but we signed up as doctors, nurses, whatever, and we got away of what's decent and what's what's too high a risk. And that comes down to an individual. Uh, I'd like to concentrate on the short-term communications issues that you all emphasize the importance of communications. And around our house, it's always a joke about when there's severe winter weather, check online for what schools are closed, but that's hard to do when your power's out. And in the hurricane situations we've had in recent years, not only is the power out, but the phone towers have been how do you communicate where people should go, where your practice is, where help can be available if there's no power? One of the supplies is a battery operated radio in order to listen for alerts. Um, I don't know beyond that <clears throat> technology. It's, it's, it's to some extent, you know, the, the redundant communications, you know, rely on those as backup. And then I think there's an element of creativity as well. Like, you know, when the, the ice storm in 2008, it was it was essentially door to door. It was putting informational um, alerts on the pizza boxes being delivered. And, you know, like that. I think there's never going to be a talk about a health issue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think there's some element of you just got to get a little bit, little bit creative as well. You can't always rely on your redundant communications, but you try to have those in place, whether it's satellite or ham radios and other things. So those are one of the things we say for families with special health care needs is that don't just rely on on a cell phone or a portable phone, so that when your the handheld device, do you need a landline, the old little rotary thing, a little push button thing? Um, and you know, if it's sitting down cellar, just save it, bring it back up. But you have to have that landline uh, if the regular phone service is working. Be creative. I think we're going to close it at that point. People need to work. But thank you, Christine and Diana and Skip, very much.